Be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John 16. We'll look at verses 16 through 24. <clears throat> and the text is printed in the next page of the bulletin for you also. <clears throat> so Peter Lightheart. Peter Lightheart is a pastor theologian who has written many books. I quote him frequently because he's pretty much written all the words, or at least most of them. And uh, it's hard not to quote him because he's written so many books. So uh, <clears throat> he has a fantastic little book called Deep Comedy, which I looked at again this week. Um, I recommend it to all of you. Um, in this little book, Deep Comedy, he proposes that because of our God, because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, because of our triune God, and also because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christians have a unique view of reality. Christians have a unique view of history as a true comedy, as opposed to tragedy, sort of thinking in those uh, literary, artistic terms, uh, comedy and tragedy. Christians have a unique view of reality and all of history as a comedy rather than a tragedy. Every metaphysics that's not a Christian metaphysics, every philosophy, every religion apart from Christianity, every worldview, every thought system, necessarily and inexorably leads to a tragic view of the world. Every single one. And that tragic view of the world is then communicated in, in the arts or literature or other cultural expressions that we find. <clears throat> and Peter Lightheart focuses on the cultural expressions, the stories the, uh, that are told in sort of classical literature. It starts with ancient Greek and Roman and moves up through Shakespeare, spends a bit of time talking about Shakespeare. But uh, he's focusing on the stories told in these, this literature, which either has been influenced by the gospel or has not been influenced by the gospel, by the, the true story of the, the living triune God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he sh shows you how the one really is tragic. Tragedy or comedy, it doesn't matter. If it's not Christian, it's tragic. And if it's Christian, tragedy or comedy, doesn't matter. It's comedy. And uh, he sees that in, um, in literature that has not been influenced by the gospel, so he gives examples and he traces through some of the writings of Homer and Virgil, the ancient uh, classical authors, the stories cannot escape despair and tragedy even when the hero wins. Even when the hero wins, even if it's technically an ancient Greek comedy and the hero wins, they can't escape despair and tragedy. They are unable ultimately to write truly happy endings to their stories because they're stuck seeing the world as one where death is the final word for everybody. Doesn't matter if your hero wins, he still dies. And we all know that. <clears throat> Lightheart says it a lot better than I do. I think his book is worth reading. I'm going to quote a little paragraph from it now. For the ancients, for moderns, and for postmoderns, human existence is fundamentally tragic. The world is built for tragedy. As a matter of sheer observation, we all die. And this is one of the few things that can be guaranteed about life. Time marches toward death. And in the end, we all die. Change can perhaps be good, but change is ultimately decay, because in the end, we all die. Desire is either 
fulfilled in a motionless stasis that might as well be death, or is never fulfilled, leaving us frustrated, and in the end we all die. Law gives a semblance of order to the process of decay and the forces of chaos, but law is uncertain, and in the end we all die. This is the story of the world that ancient, modern, and postmodern all tell. Apart from the gospel, what other story is there? That's a rhetorical question. Apart from the gospel, there is no other story to tell than one that is heading toward death, that one, one that culminates in death, one that ends abruptly in death. But because our God is who he is, because he's done what he's done, especially in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the gospel story that means a happy ending to beat all would-be endings. That's what we're going to talk about this morning from our passage. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, you sent your Son to reveal yourself to us, who you are and your ways and your will, your desires for us, to do your work for us, to, to do your work of love. And we pray that now as we hear what he has to say to us, and as we consider the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would help our hearts to be made new by your Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to respond to this gospel with faith, that you would change us from the inside out, make us alive to you by the hearing of your word and by the work of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for, the, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, Sunday mornings, for quite a while now, we've been going through John's Gospel, which is a record of Jesus' life. It's a record of his ministry. It's a record of his death and his resurrection, most importantly. And it's a record of his teachings about his own life and his death and his resurrection, most importantly. His resurrection, when God raised him from the dead bodily, the firstborn of the new creation, he was, he was raised never to die again. Death has no hold over him. 
And so, at this point in John's Gospel, he's been with his disciples for a few years, and now he's spending his last evening with them before his crucifixion. They're in the upper room. They've just finished their last supper together. They're about to head out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will meet his betrayer and go willingly to his death just a few short hours later. And everything that he said and did that evening was uh, to love his disciples. That's what John records for us earlier uh, in, in the chapters that precede this in John's gospel. Everything he did was to love his disciples, to care for them, to prepare them, to help them, not just to help them in the next few hours, not just to help them to face the terrible reality of his death the next day, but actually to give them things to remember after his resurrection for the rest of their lives. She said, the Spirit will help you remember and make sense of all of this. His own death is looming. <clears throat> his resurrection is yet to come. It hasn't happened yet. So that bright light hasn't quite dawned on them yet. But he's telling his disciples the gospel truth of his resurrection. And he's teaching them the significance of it for their lives because his resurrection will be the defining reality of history from that point on. It was what all history was moving toward. And it'll be the source of all history after his resurrection. In other words, Jesus is teaching... Get ready for the big, fancy, technical, theological term. Jesus is teaching eschatology. If you want to Google that, it's spelled E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Eschatology. That's what he's teaching. It's the study of the eschaton, which is, in Greek, it's the end. It's the end. Last things. The last days. His death is imminent, and he's teaching his disciples how his resurrection will change the arc of the story of the whole world. He uses language that has strong biblical connotations about eschatology. That section, that big section at the front where he says a little while over and over again, and his disciples say a little while, it's like maybe you noticed that. It was pretty <clears throat> repetitive and emphatic. He isn't just uh, setting up a quick game of peekaboo in the Garden of Gethsemane. A little while, and you'll see me, and then you won't, and then you will, right? Where's Jesus? Here I am. Right? Not, it's not like that. <clears throat> that phrase, a little while, uh, shows up a lot in Old Testament prophecies. It's the kind of language the Bible uses to describe the end. The day of the Lord. The last days. The end times. I think that's why the disciples are confused. They ask in verse 18, what does he mean by a little while? They're not sort of hung up on what does he mean by you won't see me and then you will. They're hung up on those words. What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. <clears throat> They're confused about his use of this biblical technical terminology for eschatology, the end times. He's talking about himself in terms that God uses for end-of-the-world stuff. The Bible also often uses symbolic language to talk about the end, the eschaton, like numbers. You know that, right? 
What number symbolizes fullness? What number symbolizes perfection? This is number seven. How many times does John record the phrase, a little while, in our passage? Seven. That's deliberate. That's not an accident. Read John's revelation. He writes this way. He uses numbers this way. He learned it from reading his favorite author, who's God. Another indicator that Jesus is teaching eschatology here, the study of the last days, the end times, is the use of the birth pangs metaphor that he gives us in verses 21 and 22, which, again, is a common biblical metaphor. Shows up in the Old Testament a lot. Isaiah uses it, chapter 26, to talk about things like the sorrows of judgment leading to the joy of resurrection. And when Jesus says in verse 22 that your hearts will rejoice, he's talking about seeing them again after he's raised from the dead. He says, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That your hearts will rejoice is basically a quote from Isaiah 66, where Isaiah again uses the metaphor of birth to talk about the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. So you should go read Isaiah 66. It's great. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, In that day, and that also is a very common phrase in the Bible indicating the end, the day of the Lord, eschatology. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. In the end... After the day of the Lord has dawned, you'll no longer be confused and scratching your heads and saying, what is he talking about? Asking me what I mean by these things. Jesus has has just been explaining that his spirit, the spirit of truth, would bring to remembrance all that he had taught them. Everything that's got them scratching their heads at this point. The spirit would help them remember it and help them understand it. And they would come to true knowledge of God in Christ. It would be God teaching them about God through God directly. And that's a reference to the eschatological promise. The promise of the end times, the the new covenant promise that God made in Jeremiah 31. It says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. which, incidentally, Jeremiah 31 is a chapter in Jeremiah's prophecy that, at least in English Bibles, is titled, The Lord Will Turn Mourning Into Joy. Maybe familiar from our passage. So go read Jeremiah 31. That's a good one, too. So there are all these indicators that Jesus is talking about the end of the world. He's talking about eschatology. But wait, isn't the end of the world supposed to be characterized by cataclysmic, world-shattering events, signs in the heavens, the sun going dark, and earthquakes and such? And Jesus is just talking about himself here, isn't he? I mean, a little while, just a few hours, and his disciples would not see him because he's dead. And then a little while, that's a few short days, And they would see him again because he's not dead anymore. They would be sad that he was dead. And then they would be happy that he's not dead anymore. 
And that's great. But, I mean, can we really say that's the end of the world? Why is Jesus using all this end-of-the-world language to talk about this? What happened when Jesus died on the cross? Well, for starters, there were earthquakes and the sun went dark, all kinds of things like that. G.K. Beale has a lot to say about the book of Revelation. He says, uh, teaches about uh, the end times. He says, I can think of no greater cataclysm than God dying on a cross. When Jesus died and rose again, it was the end of the world. It was the end of the world of death. It was the end of the tragic world. And it was the beginning of all new beginnings. It was the new world of new life. The beginning of the comic world. By comic, I don't mean silly. I don't mean naive. I don't mean trivial. I mean a world where there's real pain. But then... Tears are wiped away, every tear wiped away forever. I mean a world where sorrow is traded for deep joy that can't be taken away from you. A world where death and all evil things will be reversed. Where there's a happy ending that lasts forever and each day is brighter and better and truer than the day before. That's what's coming because of the resurrection. It says at the end of the scriptures, in Revelation chapter 21, John has this vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, which is a picture of, uh, of God's people. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. The former things, mourning, crying, pain, death, that, that describes the world. That's the final word over the world before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that shall be no more. Death shall be no more. Because the living God will be with his people forever. And that world is impossible apart from Jesus Christ. But his resurrection means Not only is that world possible, the world where every tear is wiped away and there's no more mourning and crying or pain and death, not only is that world possible, it has already begun. It's already started. The resurrection is already the new reality that defines history. This is what Jesus meant that night that he was facing his death, which he knew would devastate his disciples. He said, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 20, You will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. The world world that opposes God will be happy that Jesus has died. And it will cause all those who love Jesus to weep and lament. 
the world of death thought that it had its victory in the death of Jesus Christ. Death thought it had the final word there for just a minute. And if it had, then anybody who is interested in Jesus, anybody interested in God and life and love that lasts forever, they should weep and lament forever. Because it would have been the ultimate tragedy if death won the battle against Jesus Christ. God's own story ends in a tragedy if Jesus just dies. That's not how his story goes. You have the voice of Jesus throughout the scriptures. You see it clearly in the Gospels, but you have it in Psalms like we read in our Old Testament reading, Psalm 30. The voice of Christ himself, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, that place of death. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You have turned for me, the voice of Christ. You have turned for me, my mourning, into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. This is what Jesus says because of the resurrection. He lives with God forever, never to die again. His sorrow has been turned to joy. And he says, that's what he shares with us. Truly, truly, I say to you in our passage this morning, verse 20, you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. Weeping and lamenting and sorrow in this world are real. Death is real. But it isn't the realest thing, which the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us. He says his reality, everything about him, his death and his resurrection, his sorrow turned into joy, everything that's true about him as a human being in relationship to God, he gives over to you, he shares with you, gives it to you as a gift, so that because he's risen, we also will be risen someday. Because he lives, so shall I. Because of his resurrection, we'll all be resurrected to enjoy life with God forever. The resurrection, the resurrection so trounces death, it doesn't just exit out, it doesn't just erase it, it so trounces death that now it's a true comedy where at what at first appeared to be tragic, death as the ultimate reality, what at first appeared to be tragic actually makes the comedic ending all the better, all the happier, all the greater. Death serves the resurrection now. The resurrection of Jesus was so gloriously triumphant precisely because his death was so terrible. It was the worst thing that ever happened, so his resurrection was by far the greatest thing that ever happened. So he doesn't say your sorrow will be replaced by joy. He says your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will become joy. Your sorrow will give birth to joy. 
And he gives us the birth pangs metaphor. You mothers know what salvation means. Your sorrows will produce all the more joy because of the resurrection, because of the new life that comes from this death. The death and resurrection paradigm, not just the death paradigm, not just the tragic death paradigm, but the death and resurrection paradigm now defines your reality with God. Your sorrow turning into joy, that dynamic, defines the end, the eschaton, the purpose of everything, the guaranteed trajectory of everything, your life. The world, that is the world that's opposed to God, that's the way John uses that language in his gospel, the way Jesus uses that language, the world that's opposed to God rejoiced for a brief moment when Jesus died, but since he's risen and lives forever, your hearts will rejoice, not just for a brief moment, forever. And no one will ever take it away from you. The resurrection brings joy even now, a joy that no one can take from you no matter how bad things get. And that's not just a stubborn psychological joy in your own head that you tell yourself, you work up in yourself. I'm going to be happy. Things are bad, but I'm going to be happy instead. Positive thinking, right? This is a deep, strong joy that's founded on the objective, historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that no one can change. No one can reverse the resurrection. And this kind of joy that we we can have now, it combats all the forces of darkness. All pessimism and despair, all our guilt, all our shame, all cynicism, cynical views of the world combated by this joy of the resurrection, all possible boredom, all tragic or nihilistic views of the world. It overthrows all the world's tragic stories. That's all the world has is tragic stories, and this joy overthrows them all. This joy can look into the grave and not just not be threatened. This joy can look into the grave and laugh with all the seriousness of the grave with more seriousness than the grave. This joy can laugh to think that death would try to stop Jesus, to think that death would have the final word in this world. The living God proclaimed the final word when he raised his son Jesus from the dead. And at the end of the world, the old world, it was the beginning of a new. It's already begun. All sorrow will turn into joy. I don't know how it's possible, but with God it's possible. What's more, it's true. It's already begun. You see it in the resurrection of Jesus. So let me close with a quote from Lightheart. There is an end, the end, the endless end, when all will be well and all manner of thing will be well. In God's new world, the last things will be better than the first, further up and further in, brighter and better forever and ever, without end. So says the Lord of the resurrection. He has the last laugh and he shares it with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach our hearts to rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus in 
all of who he is and what he's done for us, especially now in the resurrection, having conquered death and sin and hell forever, having guaranteed to us that we would share the fate that he has. And that's a glorious fate indeed. We pray that you would help us to believe it, help us to obsess over it, help the resurrection of Jesus Christ to shape the way that we look at everything in this life, in this world, in our lives, in our relationships with you and with each other. May the good word of resurrection be the word that we know stands over all of our lives, beginning to end and beyond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.